You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. When you cross cultures and times, you inevitably notice cultural differences between different groups of people. However, one value that seems to transcend cultures and times in history is a value for sacrifice. People across cultures and throughout history have demonstrated a deep respect for those who sacrificially put themselves in harm's way to protect others. I think about how we just celebrated the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and we remembered the first responders with honor. This is not unique to American culture. It's all around the globe. We esteem the sacrifices made by parents on behalf of their children. We are moved by stories of sacrifice in films and novels. It's hard to keep a dry eye when it comes to a scene like Saving Private Ryan, where Private Ryan sees the troop that came to rescue him killed in war. Or in the Marvel movies where Tony Stark takes on the burden that will save humanity, but it destroys him. It's all over the movies. It's all through novels. We love stories of sacrifice. We are moved by them. There is something deep within humanity that recognizes the beauty and the honor and the love of someone giving their life for another. And in our text for today, we have an opportunity to explore this theme of sacrifice, a theme that is central to the narrative of the Bible. But it's a difficult text. And what I want you to see is though this text is a difficult text, when it is rightly understood, it's an absolutely stunning picture of the Lord. One of salvation's greatest hits. We've been working through a series called Salvation's Greatest Hits, Volume 1. Grabbing different passages in the Old Testament scriptures that point us to who God is and what God has done in the gospel and that shape our spirituality, the ways that we work out our spirituality in the world. And today we come to what is known in the Hebrew scriptures as the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. And we're going to approach this passage through two points this morning where we see a father's love and a son's redemption. A father's love... And a son's redemption. So let's take a look at our first point where we see a father's love. Verse 1 of chapter 2 begins with, after these things. After what things? Well, chapter 21 tells us of the long-awaited birth of the promised child, Isaac. After a lifetime of barrenness, 75 years in that darkness of barrenness, Abraham and Sarah lived. After a lifetime of barrenness, and after 25 years of waiting for God's promise of a son, 
Abraham and Sarah were finally holding that promised baby boy in their arms. The Lord was faithful to his promise. And you can hardly imagine the joy that this son brought into their lives. You can hardly imagine how special he was to him. Now, we all love our children, but there is something unique and special about having a child on the other side of difficulty. There's something special about having a child on the other side of pregnancy difficulties. It just heightens the love for the child all the more. This was Abraham and Sarah's experience with their son Isaac. The sheer impossibility of his birth made him all the more special to him. They must have doted on Isaac with incredible delight. He was their miracle baby. And this is what makes the command of God in this passage all the more staggering. It feels like God brings them to the highest of joys just so he can bring them to the lowest of suffering. He lays upon them a staggering sense of loss. At the beginning of Abraham's story in the scriptures, God calls him to lay his past and his family ties on the altar to go to a land that he would show him. But in this passage, God is calling Abraham to lay his future on the altar. Verse 2, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Can you imagine what must have been going through Abraham's mind? Can can you take it in? He was shell-shocked. He was utterly stunned. The difficulty of God's command was beyond imagining. So great was his love for his son, his special son, that he could scarcely take it in what he was being called to do. It must have felt like his heart was imploding, like his world was about to completely fall apart. There would be no loss equal to his loss. There could be no more costly sacrifice available. And the text emphasizes the enormity of God's call by emphasizing the word son ten times in the narrative. It's his son. His son. It's his special, beloved son. The text is taking pains to press it in to the reader. Do you see what's happening here? If it were possible, Abraham would have sacrificed 10,000 bulls and rams in order to satisfy God's command. But God required Isaac, his son. And we read this text and we think, what are you doing, God? How, how could you, God? How cruel, God? 
If you catch how the narrator is telling the story and remember the original audience, the message of this text begins to open up. The audience of this text, you remember, is a newly freed Israel, fresh out of Egypt, on their way to the promised land. And this is the audience that would have originally been reading this text. You got to keep that audience in mind. But what's stunning in verse 3 is that there is no report of Abraham haggling with God. No report of anger or frustration. No special pleading. Abraham's simple response is faithful obedience. And though this might seem monstrous to us in our cultural context, it would have made perfect sense to the original audience, Israel, as they stood on the other side of the Exodus. And here's why. In Exodus chapters 12 through 13, the people of Israel understood that the firstborn of every family belonged to the Lord. As they heard the Lord's word to Abraham in Genesis 22, they well likely may have thought, of course, Isaac, the firstborn, belongs to the Lord. This is the way it is for us too. Our firstborn belongs to the Lord, and so did Abraham's firstborn. I wish I could have been there to hear the conversation between Abraham and Isaac. We're not told what they talked about on their journey up the mountain, but surely Abraham was taking these last moments to let his son know how he loved him. Maybe he told him the story again of his miraculous birth by promise. Maybe he told Isaac how proud he was of who he was becoming. We don't know. We're left to imagine this father and son making the journey up the mountain. We're left to imagine. On the third day, verse 4 tells us, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. For three whole days, Abraham journeyed and he must have been praying and thinking the whole way, God, is there anything else I can give you? I'll give you anything. I'll pay any price. I'll do anything, but please don't let it be this. The text makes no mention of a single word from God. The heavens are silent. It's a long, drawn-out agony for Abraham. At the last stage of the journey in verse 5, we see the hardest and loneliest part of the journey because Abraham and Isaac must make the final climb to the mountaintop alone. It's at this point that the wood for the offering is placed on Isaac. 
It's taken off the donkey and it's placed on Isaac. Isaac is now carrying the wood on his back. But before they make that final climb, Abraham turns to his servants and he says, wait here. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Notice that Abraham says, I and the boy will come again to you. He doesn't know how it will happen. But in faith, he says that he will come back with Isaac at his side. And when we get to verses 7 and 8, it just makes your heart break. If you're really entering into the story. Isaac has no idea that he's on the verge of death. He recognizes that they're on their way to make sacrifice. So he breaks the silence of the text by saying, My father, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb? Where is the lamb, father? This innocent question underscores the weight of this heart-piercing scene. And Abraham's response, the Lord will provide the lamb for the offering. The Lord will provide for himself the lamb, my son. What Abraham essentially says here is that God will provide what God requires. What God demands, God supplies. We will trust him to do just that, my son. And when they reach the place which God had told them about, Abraham begins to go through the ritual procedures for the sacrifice as Isaac is watching him. He begins to lay the, the, the materials in place to build the altar. And at some point, Isaac must realize what's happening here. There's plenty of time for him to realize what's going to happen, especially when Abraham came to him to bind him with rope. He could have run away. This is an old man. He could have run away. But he allows himself to be bound and placed on the altar by Abraham. So now we see the willingness of father and son in this call. Isaac willingly submits to his father. He trusts his father as he is laid on the altar. As we take in this scene, we naturally think, what is happening here? What's going on here? Why is this in the Bible? Why would God bring Father Abraham to such a place? Why would God make such a request of Father Abraham? How could God do such a thing? Doesn't it seem heartless and cruel, even sadistic? Like God is delighting 
in the squirming suffering of Abraham. Why do we have such a passage in the Bible? I want you to see today that God has given us this text and this story because he wants to lead us to the story of a greater father, a greater son, and a greater provision. This entire scene is meant to give us spiritual and intellectual and emotional access to fatherly love of divine proportions. The love of Abraham for Isaac is a faint glimmer of God the Father's love for his son. Abraham's joy in Isaac pales in comparison to God the Father's joy in his son. You can't imagine how special the Son of God is to God the Father. The Father had incredible delight in his Son. This love and delight stretches back into eternity past, where the Father and the Son lived in enduring, unmitigated joy and intimacy together. This is what makes the Father's giving of his Son all the more staggering. It takes a story of this nature to help us to peer into the mystery of the father's loss and giving his son for us. We cannot comprehend the depth of his love and his loss that the father experienced. So great was his love for the son, his special son, his only begotten son, that it must have felt like his great Heart was imploding. There would be no loss equal to his loss. There would be no more costly sacrifice available. If it were possible to achieve the divine plan by any other means, God would have sacrificed the bulls and goats of 10,000 worlds in order to keep his son from going through this. But there was no other way to achieve the redemptive plan, the plan of salvation. Theologians call it consequent absolute necessity, which is to say that based upon God's choice to save, there was no other way but through the giving of the Son of God. It was a necessity. This is what was required. His justice required his Son And when you see the text through this lens, then you begin to ask different questions. The tone of your questions moves from, God, how could you, to, God, how could you? How could you love us like this? How could you care for us in such a way? How could you be so devoted to people like us? How could you let your love pour out on wretches like us so freely, so fully? How could you make this exchange to bring us into your family? In the text, we're told that God wanted to test Abraham. But as we progress through Scripture... We see that God wants us to use this rubric to test him. 
See if you can find a more lavish, more costly love than this. Too often, we are found to be looking for love in all the wrong places. Trying to find our hope and our satisfaction and our meaning and our identity in lesser things, lesser loves. Trying to get a soul-satisfying love from all the wrong people. We judge God's love insufficient. We think on his love like it is something cheaply gained, so we return a cheap love. We doubt his love, and we often wonder if God even cares about us when we go through the struggles and the strains and the sufferings of life. But we need to be reminded of that good word from that old school theologian, John Owen, when he said, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. That's the deepest pain you can cause God, to doubt his love for you. We must behold the love of God in this text Its breadth and length and height and depth are beyond imagining. As you feel the pain of Father Abraham in the face of giving his beloved son, you are meant to track through redemptive history to feel the pain of Father God in the face of losing his beloved son. It was an eternal love. An unshakable love, an infinitely intense love, an immeasurable love, an uninterrupted love. If he was willing to give his son for us, how much must he love us? How must God love you to give in this way? How deeply must he care for you? Regardless of all the things that run through your head, regardless of all the doubts, this is the kind of passage that is meant to be like smelling salts in a world that's trying to lull you to sleep on the love of God. Saying, wake up, beloved. You are his and he is yours. He loves you. You, there is no more astonishing phrase in language than this. God loves you. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. We sing these songs to try and get it into our souls, but it will take an eternity of praise and worship and adoration to begin to even reach the foot of that mountain that is the love of God. We will ascend forevermore and never reach that mountaintop. This text shows us a father's love 
so that we can gain access to the Father's love. But it also shows us a son's redemption. And this brings us to our second point, a son's redemption, beginning with verses 9 through 10. The pain that is coursing through Abraham's heart as he binds his son and lays him on the altar is difficult for us to process. He grabs his knife. He looks his beloved, precious son in the eyes for the last time, he thinks. And then he puts the knife to his neck because that's how sacrificial victims were slaughtered when it came to priestly rituals. It wasn't a stabbing motion. It was a blade on the neck to cut the artery so that the blood would pour. So imagine Abraham, his hand shaking as he goes to put that blade to his son's neck. And then all of a sudden, Abraham, Abraham, the scene is interrupted. The the narrator is developing this final scene, almost like it's in slow motion. Like you are to see the shaking hand of Abraham. Was his face streaming with tears as he looked down at his son? How was Isaac looking up into the eyes of his father? What was said in those exchanges of eye contact between father and son? It's slow motion. Now, when the original audience was observing this scene, hearing this scene, I want you to remember that this is one of the keys to understanding how we interpret this passage. Okay? Remember the original audience and their sensibilities, their lenses. When, when the first audience heard this, they, they did not balk like we balk at this passage. They didn't balk at God's requirement of the firstborn. They knew that the firstborn belonged to the Lord. It was the same for them as well. But there's more to Israel's vantage point that we need in order to understand this text. When we view this text through our cultural lenses, we ask How could God require such a thing from Abraham? That's the question we ask. But the Israelites would have asked a very different question. In Exodus chapters 12 and 13, the Lord says that the firstborn belonged to him. But they could redeem the firstborn by the sacrifice of a lamb. The lamb became the substitute For the firstborn. And from the time that God called for Abraham's firstborn, the Israelites would not have been asking how the Lord could do such a thing. They would have been asking throughout the entire story where's the lamb? Where is the lamb to redeem the firstborn? Where is the lamb for the offering? Where is the substitute lamb? By which Abraham can redeem Isaac. It's at this climactic point in the narrative that the answer to the question comes. As the words of the angel fall on the ears of Abraham, his eyes turn 
and behold, he sees a ram caught in the thicket. Here he sees the substitute that will be placed on the altar in place of Isaac. The substitutionary ram did not appear by chance or accident or good fortune. It is the clear perspective of the narrator that this ram was the Lord's provision to redeem Isaac. When Isaac asked his father where the lamb for the sacrifice was, Abraham responded in faith saying, the Lord will provide. And now Abraham's faith has become sight. It's as if he has received his son back from the dead. (laughs) But ultimately, Isaac's question, where is the lamb? Israel's question, where is the lamb? Would find an answer on another mountain called Calvary. On this mountain, the Lord provided a priceless substitute for his firstborn son. On that mountain, the Lord provided the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Israel was supposed to see themselves not in Abraham, but in Isaac. Because Exodus 4 calls Israel God's firstborn son. And so Israel was to see themselves in Isaac and to know that there was a provision that was made to redeem them as his firstborn. But it's not until we get to Calvary that we see the lamb given, not just for Israel, but for everyone who shares the faith of Abraham. Where is the lamb? He's descending from glory to take on human flesh. Where is the lamb? He's living a righteous life to become a perfect offering. Where is the lamb? He's praying in Gethsemane and sweating drops of blood Under the weight of divine judgment, where is the lamb? He's being beaten and spit upon by the very people that he has created as he is falsely condemned by a kangaroo court. Where is the lamb? He's being flogged and scourged with a crown of thorns placed on his head. Where is the lamb? He's carrying the old rugged cross up Calvary's mountain. Where is the lamb? He's crying out for our pardon from a cruciform altar. Where is the lamb? He's being forsaken by the father, suspended as the bridge between heaven and earth. There is no angel calling out for his release. There is no one to stay the hand of his executioner. But he doesn't try to run away. Because he willingly came into the world for this very purpose. Here we are seeing father and son aligned in their redeeming purposes to provide salvation for us. Jesus himself said it like this. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it up again. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But here's the thing. We can hardly imagine the joy 
of Abraham and getting Isaac back. They must have skipped down that mountain back home. Mom didn't know what was going on. What happens on the mountain stays on the mountain, right? I don't know what they were talking about on the way down, but it was joy all the way down. And and as much as we reach at trying to access the joy of Father Abraham and getting his son back, we can scarcely imagine the joy of Father God when he not only got his son back from the dead, but he also got us back from the dead in the resurrection. Where is the lamb? He is now seated on the throne, surrounded by myriads of angels crying out, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And one day we will join the chorus that says to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So where do we go with this text? How should this text take shape in our lives? How should it form our spirituality? There are a few things that I want to say that you should take away from this text. First, I want you to see that this text helps us to see that our greatest problem is not that God's love for us is in question. That's not our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is that we have not made his love the core of our self-understanding. Do you know that every single sin finds its beginning in unbelief concerning the love of God? Every, every one. That's why sin is so egregious. It's because it's disbelief in the love of the Father. After seeing the love that is displayed in this text, all sin is unbelief regarding the love of God. Our greatest problem is not that God's love's in question. It's that we've not made his love for us the core of our self-understanding. Our problem is that we don't live out of that love as our essential way of being in the world. This is the truth sent from above that we must pull down into our ordinariness in life. Whether you're happy or sad, you are loved. Whether you're working or resting, you are loved. Whether you're succeeding or failing, you are loved. And we must celebrate this truth if we're really going to take it into our hearts. Every sin begins in doubt of God's love. But as we celebrate that love, as we join our hearts together in worship, that's why Sunday morning worship is not just some average, ordinary thing. It's an extraordinary time where heaven descends. And we are lifted up to glory. That's why it's a sin and a shame to miss out on Christian worship. That's why it's a sin and a shame to sit in the pews and act like, big deal. Impress me. Say something new. Say something I've never heard before. 
That's insanity. I promise you on that day where all sin is removed from your vision and from your feeling and your thinking, when you stand before Jesus, you will unravel in grateful love and adoration. There will be no stoicism on that day. There will be no emotional constipation on that day. You will be free. You will lift your hands. You will fall on grateful knees. You will shout. You will rejoice. And we'll do it all together forever and ever. There will be no dullness. Nothing will stop you from lifting up your love and praise to the Lamb. And now's a good time to begin rehearsing for that future. You're loved. Next, what this text means is that we must make a daily practice of unmasking the lies that the world tells us about who we are. You have to make a daily practice of unmasking the lies. Name the lies concerning who you are. You know, the world is always trying to tell you who you are. The world is trying to give you a grid for thinking about your identity. I mean, identity itself as a concept is a very modern construct. That, that, that idea that the world is telling you who you are, you know how it does it? You know what? You're a consumer. Go ahead and spend it all. Make yourself happy. Do your thing. Do you, boo. Right? <laughs> right? Think about all the identity issues, right, that circulate in our cultural moment. The world's trying to tell you who you are. And over all of that, God is saying, that's already sorted out. You want to know who you are? The beloved. That's how you ought to know yourself. That's how we ought to know one another. You're God's beloved. (laughs) That is mind-bending. And that changes everything about the way you live, the way you relate to people, the way you handle money, the way you think about security, the way you think about vocation, the way you use your words, the way you interact on social media, the way you handle conflict, all of this is shaped by whether or not you identify most deeply in your core as the beloved or as something else. If you identify as I'm the successful one who went and got fancy degrees and worked in fancy places, then you will always be stepping on other people or trying to prove yourself to other people. You will, you will be a restless, exhausted person. The beloved don't feel the need to do all that. That's not who I am. Now, I'm going to be successful. I'm going to be diligent. I'm not going to take the world's definition of success. But I'm going to put in work. I'm going to learn. I'm going to grow. I'm going to contribute to society. It's going to be beautiful and good. But that's not who I am. I'm the beloved. Unmask the lies that the world tells you about who you are. Next, I want you to see that this passage encourages us as it relates to our life in a fearful culture. This is a culture of fear. Have you noticed? It's, it's, like, it's like constant panic all the time. There's something to panic about. Now, here's the thing. Here's what's interesting. A lot of people think that the antidote to fear is strength and aggression. You got to be strong, pressed through the fear, ah, right? 
The antidote to fear is not strength and aggression. It's love. That's what John says. Perfect love casts out fear. The antidote to your fearful soul is love. And what this means is this. Looking at a passage like Genesis 22 and where it leads us and seeing how loved we are, how loaded up with that love, how inexhaustible that love is that God has for us should make us the most fearless people on the planet. I'm not afraid of what people are thinking out there. I'm not afraid of the things that people out there believe. That does not disturb my sleep one iota. I'm not afraid because I'm loved. We ought to be fearless, fearlessly engaged with our neighbors. What do we have to be afraid of? What's the worst case scenario? They hate what I have to say or they hate me and they reject me. That happens and it hurts, but I'm loved. I can weather that. It ought to make us fearlessly generous. What do I have to fear about giving in Jesus' name to exhaust the needs of others? What do I have to fear about letting go more of my income every year to make sure I'm growing in generosity, not remaining static? What, what am I going to, I'm afraid that I'm going to wind up on the street, that God's not going to provide for me, that God isn't going to meet my needs, that God's going to fail in his promises? Am I, what am I afraid that my joy is going to be diminished? It, is, is what Jesus said false? It's more blessed to give than to receive? Like all of these things come in, fearless generosity. So when you are pressed in a moment where you are being called to be generous, where generosity is the thing you know you ought to do, but you're struggling, you got to name that fear and say, I can be fearlessly generous because of God's love for me. He will care for me. Fearlessly generous, fearlessly patient in the unknown. How many of you can identify with being fearful in the face of the unknown? What's going to happen? I don't know what's to come. I'm nervous. Things could go really poorly. My life could fall off the rails. Like things could get really hectic and ugly and painful. And it's, hey, you know what? You can be fearlessly patient in the unknown. Why? Just let me hear you say it. Because you're loved. You're loved. God loves you. He's not going to let anything come into your life except that which is going to beautify you and make you more into the likeness of Christ. Now, we don't get to determine the recipe for our own personal lives. God does that. And some of us have hard roads and difficult crosses to carry. That is reality. That's tough. But he's not called us to walk it alone. He's called us in a community, a community that celebrates that love and reminds us of that love. So that no matter where we go, we are reminded, goodness and mercy, follow us all the days of our lives. Fearlessly rested amidst busyness and panic. Fearlessly rested. How many of you face the fear that if I don't work from sunup to sundown seven days a week, that, that it's all going to fall apart? Listen, God loves you. 
And that's why he built rest into the rhythms of the Christian life. God loves you as much when you're resting as when you're working. It does not waver. And God is not calling you to a restless existence. He wants to to grow your faith. Remember, Remember our first sermon in this series. God has designed things in creation and in the new creation such that we are fruitful and multiply when we're working and we're fruitful and multiply when we're resting. This is a reminder of that. God loves us so we can rest. The world may not like that you're resting, but remember, the world is trying to build its identity on things other than being the beloved. So don't play that game. Fearlessness. Last thing I want to say in terms of walk away impact is this. Having pastored for a little while now and walked with people through different circumstances and sufferings and losses and trials, I want to tell you that it's passages like this passage that should anchor your soul as you live life and prepare for death. Because I'm going to tell you, you shouldn't wait until you get older or until you're laying on a hospital bed, until you're fighting for your life, so to speak, to store your heart with the things that will stabilize your soul in the face of death. We're not just here to prepare you for life. We're here to prepare you for death. And we have a gospel that does indeed prepare you for life and death. This passage is the kind of passage I would have come to mind on that day when your eyes are growing dim. If you get to live out your life to long years, and one day you are laying on a hospital bed preparing, it's this truth that I want ringing in your soul. That you've been the beloved through the years, and that you are about to enter into the fullness of that love unmitigated unmixed pulled into the center of the crossfire of triune love it prepares you for life and it prepares you for death so you need not fear it's my hope and my prayer that in the culture of our church we would prize God's sacrifice that we would esteem the sacrifices made by the Savior on behalf of his children, that we would be moved this week and forevermore by the picture of sacrifice in God's word. May something deep within us recognize the beauty, the glory, and the honor and the love of the Father in giving his Son to redeem us. Amen. Let's pray. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.